Welcome to this Wonus. I am one of your co-hosts, Isabeau. I'm your other co-host. My name is Morgan. And this week, we are joined by a very special guest, Andrea Martucci of Shelf Love fame. Oh, I'm just so happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> you had that big sigh all saved up and then it's like, it's a wonus. It's a wonus. I'm just so excited to be in the presence of such amazing, storied, long-running podcasters such as Morgan and Isabeau. Go it's on. True. It's true. <laughs> Y'all are all our sons. <laughs> <laughs> all of our juniors. And the so today, this week, we are talking about a film. This is our second movie, Wonus. And in typical Womance fashion, it came out more than 30 years ago. And it is called She Devil. And it stars Meryl Streep, Roseanne Barr, and Ed Begley Jr., I hope you all joined us for our live tweet of the screening with Andrea, although I know you all didn't because I was there. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, though. We had, a, we had a really good time on Twitter. It's good to have an assignment when you are watching a movie. I agree. Yeah, it's true. So for those of you who don't know why we would be covering She-Devil, one of the main characters, indeed the main villainess, is a romance novelist. I think we'll find through our discussion a lot of ideas around romance novels and how readers are perceived and writers is central to this story. So basically, Roseanne portrays a woman named Ruth who is small and homely, and we know this because she has a very big mole on her face and a bad perm, as Andrea pointed out to me. And she's a homemaker, and her husband, Ed Begley Jr., is an accountant. And one fateful night, he meets... Meryl Streep's character, Mary Fisher, Fisher, who is a very successful romance novelist, and they start an affair, and eventually Ed Begley leaves Ruth for Mary, and Ed Begley, I should say Bob, that's his character's <laughs> name, he leaves his uh, wife for Mary, and his wife decides that she's going to commit her life to revenge, and so she drops the kid kids off at their house their two terrible children and begins an elaborate <laughs> journey of self-discovery and vengeance against not only bob but also mary very specifically by a list of bob's assets that she one by one seeks to destroy and take away from him right we talk about how romance novels are central to these ideas but actually profession wise accountancy is the underpinning structure <laughs> of She-Devil because at one point Bob yells at her like life is about see I've already forgotten the terms assets, assets and, and what's the opposite of assets liabilities assets liabilities. and liabilities yes exactly and so she makes a list of his assets which are family career and finally freedom oh, I think yeah. was his house the first one actually yeah, his house home. was the first one yeah mm-hmm so uh, one thing I learned, this movie, when it came out in 1989, was the second adaptation of a book, which the book is titled, I think, The Life and Loves of a She-Devil. And then the first adaptation was a BBC series, a miniseries of the book. Some differences, Bob is called Bobbo in the original series and <laughs> the novel. 
I want to start off with what were our assumptions going into this screening of She-Devil? So I had some assumptions coming from 2021, specifically about Roseanne Barr and her character and Meryl Streep, because I conveniently forgot how funny both of those women are. So that was one of my assumptions that like Meryl would be playing totally straight to Roseanne's like boorish and probably cringy comedy yeah and that was immediately upended another assumption that i had was that the affair itself would take up more screen time in terms of the tension of the finding out and like then what happens and like the sadness that ruth roseanne's character plays and spend more time with the anxiety of the marriage breaking up and like there's no time on that at all it was just like immediately like she knows like in the first 10 minutes and then she's like plan of action and i was like oh this is actually really nice that like the immediate acceptance that Bob is a total asshole and that she needs to go on this journey to destroy him and Mary Fisher, I thought was like, oh man, a movie about infidelity that isn't about infidelity. What a treat. So I have two follow-up questions. Was this your first time seeing She-Devil? Yes, it was. And have you ever watched Roseanne's television series? Yes, we watched Roseanne, the the TV show, as a family. It, so when you were younger. When I was a kid, yeah. That's so interesting because I understand like the boorish assumption about Roseanne's character because she's, I think, culturally ascribed that. Whereas mm-hmm. if you actually watch her television show as an adult or having like our current cultural context, it seems less like that, which I think is why her like political coming out was so disturbing yeah (laughs) to a lot of people what about you Andrea what were your assumptions coming into this screening so I did see this at some point in the past could not tell you when how old I was I don't remember literally anything about it Mm -hmm. but I remembered that there was a romance novelist character and I remembered a lot of sort of like Roseanne's Mary Fisher lived in a palace by the sea, like voiceover. For some reason, I did remember that. And I think that now in 2021, in my position as somebody who thinks a lot about romance novels and romantic love and approaches media very differently, I think coming into this movie, maybe particularly because I'm interested in the idea of how a romance novelist would be portrayed from the public and or how the film would navigate around a character's identity as a romance novelist. I came in really focused on those aspects. And I think probably the first time I watched it was much more interested in just like the fun of it. So this time around, seeing sort of the character sketches and being able to connect them to a larger, broader cultural context, not just from 1989, but the larger conversation over time about women who read romances and who romance novelists are. And I think that what I had forgotten about, I keep expecting movies like this to say something interesting about love or the nature of romantic love. (laughs) Yeah. And I definitely watched this like, when I was like a teenager, like an unmarried person who was not in a relationship. And now looking back on it now, I'm like, this is a lot about institutions Mm -hmm. that surround the ideas of love and marriage and gender roles and how people based on their gender are supposed to act in relationships. And 
the characters, while caricatures, are interesting characters, but also not very deep. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I came in with an agenda, but I think I was still a little bit surprised. Yeah. I had watched it when I was super young. And so like my memories of it were colors and shapes, basically. And they were mostly pink. And that's unsurprising because pink is so prominent in this film. And also it was my favorite color. So I'm sure I just idolized Mary Fisher when I watched it. And I was a child, so I had no critical like uh, relationship with that. I was like, wow, that bubble bath is huge. Obviously, she's a very good person to have such nice things. But I came into this with the assumption that it was going to say a lot of disparaging stuff about romance novels, romance readers, because I think it is important to point out that Ruth is a romance reader. She's a big Mary Fisher fan, in fact, and that these are not like suggestively coded as romance novels as we know them now. Like there's clinch covers and the paperbacks are scattered all over her house. And so I I thought it was going to be more about commentary on or making a joke out of women's pleasure and women's striving and I feel like that main assumption was very much upended in this screening I think maybe it was like a lot more about women's labor than I anticipated and that feels very much like of the time I feel like there was a lot of anxiety in 1989 around the idea of navigating like women finding meaning like what did they find meaning in and a lot of the anxiety specifically around romance novels was ascribing the readers as like bored housewives Mm -hmm. who are unsatisfied in their relationship and longing for romance and Ruth's journey is really interesting and I don't want to say what I wish this movie was but I'm gonna say it I wish this movie gave Ruth more pleasure out of the way her life changed from housewife, full-time caretaker to a job where she is a caretaker to a job in the office from the suburbs to the big city where she has this evolution of kind of taking ownership of her life and coming into her own. But I hate that it's driven by the need for revenge against her asshole ex-husband. Yeah. And she doesn't take any pleasure in it other than getting back at him. Yeah, it's a single-minded story that is centralizing revenge on a man. Ruth would not have upended her life if her life hadn't been upended. Like, she would have continued down that path, I think. And even the characterization of bored housewives as, like, the sole readers of romance was weird in the beginning because her voiceover is like, I love my husband. He's such a great accountant. I'm going to get dressed up and go to this fancy party for him. And we have this, like awful embarrassing montage where she's like trying to get into a dress and go to the makeup counter and Mm -hmm. so even like the assertion that she's bored like the film asserts that but Ruth doesn't assert that and so that conversation like that finding meaning is a deep problem but the film itself is like already dealing on two levels with what a romance reader is and I don't think it actually means bored I think bored is a euphemism for something potentially worse I think it's like unquestioning like I I don't think she was bored I think like this was the life set out before her and it's interesting because Mary Fisher on her external very much personifies like the ideal feminine she's thin she's beautiful she's like effortlessly wealthy in the way that I think a lot of us perceive romance novelists such as Judith McNaught I when I imagine 
Judith McNaught, I imagine effortlessly wealthy. <laughs> and I'm sure she works really hard. Whatever. That's the cartoon in my mind. And I think like internally, it turns out that she's actually like hyper ambitious, very much an aggressor in her own life story, very sexualized. Like, it's not even a matter of, like, lady in the streets freaking the sheets. I think she's fully embodied sexuality. She hires a man to keep him at her house to have sex with him. We discover. (laughs) And she has, like, a really difficult relationship with her mother, which I think is one of those things that often is considered the anti-femme, is Mm -hmm. if you, like, can't connect with your own mother. And, And she's not a caretaker, and she doesn't want to be. She has a lot of staff who take care of her, in fact. Whereas Ruth outwardly looks dowdy, but is in fact a very apt homemaker and it isn't until things are ruptured that she does things like accidentally bakes the gerbil in the casserole, which I don't even think was her fault, and like trips and falls and throws the crudite at her in-laws. And I love that dinner party scene because his mother, so she's having to host a dinner with her in-laws, knowing full well that her husband is having this affair, but she's in 10,000% like Tammy Wynette mode. I'm just going to wait it out. I'm just going to be as good of a wife as possible. And then he's going to realize the folly of his ways, which probably would have happened if he wasn't also creating an image. Like he had created an image of a family man. And I think Ruth actually believed into it. Like she was indoctrinated into that idea. And he was leveraging it in order to have a very different lifestyle. So this scene at the dinner party, his parents come and his mother is constantly standing up for her. She's like, stop being so mean to her. Don't talk to her like that. She's very stressed. And in fact, his own father is like pretty passive, but also not ganging up on her. Mm -hmm. He is the only one who's attacking her. And I thought that's when I started to get like a fizz in the back of my head that was like, I don't think this movie is what I thought it was. Like, there's complex relationships happening here. And Morgan, what you said about Mary Fisher and kind of the construction of her character, I think it's really interesting, especially when it feels like Mary Fisher's whole persona is an act and a performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that not only do you get the sense early on that she plays this sexual alluring, oh, me, I don't know how to balance a checkbook as like a way to manipulate men, but also as a way to further her own ambition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, exactly the things you pointed out. And then it becomes super, super clear when later her character morphs from this low or middle brow cultural sort of caricature into the highbrow cultural caricature mm-hmm. yeah. of the artiste who who goes from wearing pink to wearing black, mm-hmm. who whose readers go from housewives and women to like old white men. And is it maybe speaking about just all of these as just performances that are hiding who people are? I'll contradict myself. I don't think Ruth was very earnest and yeah. not performing a role. She was, right. as Isabel, I think you had said, like the life that had been set out for her. But yeah, Um, I agree. She was incredibly earnest and there is something conniving and manipulative about Mary Fisher. Although in the takedown of her artifice, when like Ruth delivers the children and the dog and then like 
suddenly her mother has to live with her because it's discovered that she's incontinent and can't be at the fancy slash terrible old folks home. Morgan, I'm glad that you brought up the dinner party with the in-laws because I was really surprised that especially the mother-in-law was standing up for Ruth. And I thought that was really interesting. I think you're right to say that the dad was passive. And then we get all this intense information while the gerbil has been stewed and the crudités on the floor about the fact that Bob and Ruth became accidentally pregnant as teens and then had to have this shotgun wedding. And so there's all this other stuff that was baked into their relationship that Ruth, I think, was really working with and Bob clearly wasn't. And so then when we get to the breakdown of the artifice of Mary Fisher's character, when especially her mother shows up and we find out that she gave a child up for adoption, which puts us into this space where it's like Ruth and Mary chose differently. Yeah. And I know I'm supposed to think her mom is funny. What a terrible thing to tell People Magazine. <laughs> like The fact that People Magazine totally showed up felt very reminiscent of our conversation about Daniel Steele. And, yeah. like, and I was like, oh man, like the hits just keep coming here. Like This film felt both very referential of Romance Landia in a yeah. way, but not like reverent. And to frame that for people who haven't seen the movie, her mother doesn't tell it like this like rags to riches story she's like oh my god she's always been a slut of course she writes sexy books like she's always been horny as hell when she was a teen she got pregnant she gave the baby up for adoption she has a son somewhere we don't know yeah and Isabel, i want to come back to a comment that you just dropped in so casually what is potentially worse than being a bored housewife a woman who gives up her baby and doesn't fulfill her purpose as vessel I think it's being a wife. I think the movie is insinuating there's something worse than being a bored housewife. And I think it's being someone without purpose that is internal purpose. Because Mary Fisher, her life derails whenever she has to welcome in others. Mm -hmm. And that's when things start to fall apart for her. Ruth's life starts to get better when she starts, like, she's on this path of revenge, and it's very single-minded, but she also does things like, in her bid for revenge, she starts doing altruistic things that are also pleasurable for her, like creating the soccer team at the uh, assisted living facility and founding her own business with her newfound best friend and putting women in positions of power. And there is a great moment that you tweeted about, Andrea, where she sets up one of her new employees. So she starts an employment agency for women who are otherwise considered outcasts. And she does things like, you should wear pussy bows. People will hire you if you wear pussy bows. So she changes their external appearance so they can get these jobs. And she gets this beautiful young woman a job with her husband in order to cause him to stray from Mary Fisher. But she does this great thing where she says, of course you should tell him you love him. Why would that scare any man away? And Andrea, you pointed out, you're like, this is both incredibly cruel, but also an incredibly important lesson. And like they stay friends and like co-conspirators and they help reveal his illegal business dealings together, which is actually ultimately a benefit for Mary Fisher because it turns out he was also stealing from her. And so this like sense of like internal path that is not predetermined, this is what I want. I want revenge. 
eventually leads to her finding success and her finding fulfillment and her also being able to help others. I was so conflicted about what she was doing at the employment agency because Morgan, I think you just said putting women in positions of power, but every role she was able to put a woman in was some sort of subservient position in a hierarchy of power where they were able to use their role to manipulate situations to aid in Ruth's revenge. But also, yes, there was kind of a good for the person in that position. So there's one woman who comes to her agency and obviously has fairly low self-esteem. Like, this is all I'm good for is like being a housewife. And that's what my husband says. And then she gets a job as a clerk in a court, which helps Ruth because then she can just, as a behind the scenes person, change which docket her husband or ex-husband's case gets assigned to from Mm -hmm. a judge who is essentially bought off, a white man, to a black woman who is like, "Uh, yeah, no, justice will be served today. And in the case of the secretary that she assigns to work at Bob's company. On the one hand, yes, it's like she helps that young woman learn an important life lesson and maybe get better taste in men and learn something about if a man is scared by you professing your love, he's not interested in you for the right reasons. And if you want true love, which I think that character, she is a romantic person, but also it's all just a service to... Ruth's needs and so I just I felt really conflicted I wanted to see Ruth not just craftily pulling people's puppet strings and doing these things and building these relationships really to help people instead of I felt like it was very transactional like she's pretending to care and pretending to help them and yes maybe in the process helping them but also underlying all of that just for her goal I think the only part that I would push back on here is with Hooper because Hooper's transformation, who is also the principal from Kindergarten Cop and also the Willow Tree and Pocahontas, the Disney animated version. I love this actress and I don't know her name. And so she's working at the elder care facility and she has $55,000, which I guess is a million dollars in 1989 money. It seems like a lot. Ruth is very impressed by this amount of money. And there's this scene that Morgan talked about in the Twitter conversation where they're just sharing these like beautiful cakes. And there's this moment where Ruth is talking to Hooper about it's so important to enjoy your life. It's so important to take pleasure. And that is actually one of the only scenes of bodily pleasure in this film. Like every other pleasure is the pleasure of schadenfreude. Every other pleasure is the Mm. pleasure of watching someone be torn apart. Like every other pleasure is like your plans coming into fruition. But this is like one of those only moments where she's like, Hoop, you got money. You need to spend it. We only get this one life. And then she's kicked out for giving the old folks uh, caffeine pills and starting the soccer team. And then there's this beautiful scene where Hooper is chasing the bus with her little suitcase and she's like Vesta Rose don't leave me behind and then they start this company together and Andrea you said on Twitter at the end like where's hoop and I felt the exact same way because it felt like in that moment because I think you're right this film seemed to be making a comparison between Ruth and Mary Fisher that they were actually quite similar women and that when you bend your entire purpose to something external either artifice or money or in Ruth's case revenge like you you begin to lose sight of what's important or who's important or whatever. And Hoop was like a grounding force and kept Ruth on the side of like protagonist. 
And then to lose her was to lose this sort of female empowerment, like you can to conversation that had been baking. And yeah, I was like, I was sad to lose Hoop at the end, but I loved Hoop and I loved what she did for Ruth and I loved what Ruth did for Hoop. Linda Hunt. Linda Hunt. Thank you so much. I would never describe revenge as an external. <laughs> like Revenge feels like a very personal pleasure to me. And I think I would also say like what they're doing at Vesta Rose Employment Agency is taking people. Hoop worked at this assisted care facility because she couldn't get a job anywhere else because she was a weirdo. And the whole point of Vesta Rose is to take weirdos or outcasts who are women and give them the tools to participate in the artifice of general culture so that they can then be inserted into the machine. But what Ruth is doing by inserting these women into the machine is helping to break the machine a little bit, right? Like her husband has that really expensive lawyer who got his job because his father was a really expensive lawyer. And the way he's going to win the trial isn't by being good at being a lawyer. It's by paying off a judge, right? Who Or not paying off a judge, merely playing golf with a judge. Yeah. And she is able to, I think by like setting out to destroy one man, she is in fact rupturing the system that has protected that man for all this time. And so I think like sometimes selfish pursuits can be for the greater good. And while I will say revenge is a selfish pursuit, I think a woman like Ruth is very entitled to a selfish pursuit. And I think Mm. what happens along the way, right, is that she actually benefits people ultimately. She's using them, but I think no one is worse for wear at the end of it. Both of your points are really interesting because I loved Hooper. And and again, I know it's not in good form to be like, I wish there was this. But I feel like the movie would have been much stronger if they had brought Hooper back at the end and shown that their relationship was valuable to Ruth and that she was growing in a particular direction, but ending with essentially Ruth getting the satisfaction of seeing that all of these machinations have actually changed Bob into being a better person, I feel like centers it back on him Instead of Ruth's personal growth and all the things she's achieved and all of the good things she's done. But I am I am given pause at really the conversation about putting these people who were outcasts in society and then putting them in these positions where they can start to break the system from within. Because at this time slash in this movie's universe, it's an employment agency. It's not chief executive talent finding organization Mm -hmm. like it would be unrealistic to be like and now I've placed this woman who is a housewife in the role of chairman of the board or whatever so thinking about it from that lens of you can play along with this shitty system you're not fighting it head on you're fighting it like from within by just breaking down the systems that protect yeah this structure instead of like from afar launching grenades at this terrible structure just sending a bunch of beavers in to like gnaw away the foundation yeah it's sand in the gears yeah she's Mm. in the employment agency specifically makes the point about we are going to make your soft skills as a woman profitable to you Mm -hmm. so people get their job placements based on their 
homemaker abilities. <laughs> and I think it's more about cashing out in the system, which in 1989 wasn't something <laughs> that was like expected, right? Right. And I think also making female labor visible was a large mm-hmm. part of the conversation around Vesta Rose. And I thought we talked about this on Twitter, Andrea, where it's I wonder if that conversation would play differently. And I'm like, I don't honestly think that it does because anytime that I become aware of a homemaker versus quote unquote career mom conversation, like it's the same tire track. Like it's just mm-hmm. women's labor is constantly made invisible. There's this wonderful book called Rage that came out in 2019 before the pandemic about this very thing. And so the project of making soft skills profitable, of being able to market the labor and make visible the labor that women have been doing and then put it on a resume so that they can get the office job, I think is it was an interesting move for this movie to make, especially where we start with Ruth. I want to go back to what you said, Morgan, about Ruth being entitled to selfishness, because I think that's a beautiful point. I think it's really right. But Mary Fisher is also selfish and not entitled to it. And so I wanted to talk to both of you about who gets to be entitled to selfish stuff and like Mm -hmm. how, how does this movie make those decisions? I wrote a note on this. I was like, Mary Fisher is like the pinnacle of femininity and we're all supposed to like read her as villainess because she's too good at femininity ultimately but then the parts of femininity that she blows it at are the subservient parts and that's how we know she's bad like she sure she's beautiful and she's well dressed and she's well spoken and she's thin but she doesn't know how to do laundry so what good is mary fisher ultimately to someone like bob right Mm -hmm. what good is mary fisher ultimately to society whereas meanwhile Mm. intercut we see ruth being able to care for the elderly inspire a friend to go on an adventure fix up a like warehouse in the middle of the big city that's gone asunder right like she is very good at labor Mm -hmm. and i think it's the effortlessness of mary fisher that the film insinuates is her undoing Mm. but it's like almost in bad faith to say something like that about someone like mary fisher And that's when I started to be like, I don't know how this movie wants me to feel about what's going on. Like these wonderful things that it's saying. That makes me think of the discourse of like romance novels in here. Because everything you just said, Morgan and Isabel, this is an amazing question to ask. Because I think that Ruth's character is sort of constructed like she's the good housewife who cares for her children and cares for her home and her husband but she's actually not that interested in being a mother Mm -hmm. and uses her children (laughs) as winning the war but also given the way her children are I'm, i'm not insinuating that children with behavior issues are a direct result of the mother but Like, the children are kind of jerks, and she seems disinterested in parenting and lending emotional support to them. And again, like, I'm not faulting her for that, but it really challenges the assumption of her as someone deeply invested in parenting as a role. And I think it's because it's around that, like, artifice where she starts as earnest, and she is really trying, and I think that narratively sets us up as the audience to be like, she is downtrodden and she deserves something good for herself. Yeah. And then Morgan, all the things you were talking about with Mary's, she's obviously 
scheming and she has ambition and she's manipulative Mm -hmm. and she's not good at this domestic labor and actual caretaking and all of that like all of that mary's character was really importantly about the artifice of love Mm -hmm. and sort of like this artificial construction of not just like femininity and success and wealth and all of that but also that she's chasing this artificial idea about what relationships are and what love should look like and romance oh my god this just sparked we've been talking about how mary fisher and ruth are the same women but i think maybe even their trajectories are the same and mary is going through a really painful transition process because of what ruth is putting her through to be frank and ruth is going through a more generative one but a growth process nonetheless and so I think about like where they start and we talk about how Mary Fisher is all about artifice and how Ruth's kids suck maybe this movie is saying Ruth is wrong like she is earnestly pursuing this ideal housewife but clearly it's not working out because her kids fucking suck and meanwhile when her daughter goes to live with Mary there's all these background scenes of her young child being groomed by men right yeah there's the like photographer telling her to take off her like in the background there's a part where the butler is dancing with her the minute Mary leaves and seductively very sexually yeah yeah it's It's like that's a 14 year old kid yeah and then at the end of the movie the daughter is actually being like we don't know whether or not the cookies are actually good and I don't even think Bob is a good person he doesn't seem different than what he was before he fucked up the lasagna and now another co-worker has to clean up his mess right in the prison mess hall spoiler alert and then he's like I made these cookies and you can see his kids being like I I can't tell they're like sphinxes I think the cookies are bad And I think it matters that the cookies are bad and the kids are now like, oh, these are great, dad. Like they're learning to be more genuine people now that the new Ruth, the fully formed Ruth is in the picture. Meanwhile, Mary, perhaps she's also living her best life at the end. I don't think she's suffering for being a literary novelist. Yeah. Yeah. Like as a media darling and much beloved. Even that interview with the whoever talk show person was like you've made the switch from those clinch cover romances to this very hefty smart sounding book tell me about that sally jesse raphael yeah yeah i thought like the way they actually framed that i was pretty surprised by and i think this will get more into the theme of what our actual shows are about (laughs) I was surprised by how respectfully romance novels were handled. I think, like, Isabeau is right. I think it does beg the question, what's worse than being a bored housewife? And it is being whatever Ruth is, which is a diligent housewife. Yeah. <laughs> a superficially diligent housewife. But I think it, there's this part where, and you pointed this out, Andrea, it cuts from Bob and Mary about to make love for the first time in front of a roaring fire and it cuts to Ruth in their shared bedroom and she reads a fade to black sexy and she gets frustrated and slams the book shut and sets it down next to her. First of all, that's very clever editing. It's a very good joke for people who read romance. I don't know how conscientious it was, but it's not like the joke about Ruth is actually her fatness and not her romance novel readership. And I think whenever... 
Mary goes on Sally Jesse Raphael. I remember being struck by the fact that Sally Jesse Raphael did not assert that the literary novel was in any way like better or more important than her other work. She said, it's just a change and you've done really well and you're going to reach a new audience, which is, I think, can be vaguely coded. But I was surprised that there wasn't anything like specifically disparaging about romance novels. I think that's interesting because I think you're right. There's nothing specifically disparaging about romance novels, but like Mary Fisher is made to be ridiculous so that there's something Mm -hmm. deep in there about romance authors. Mm -hmm. And Ruth is also ridiculous at the beginning. So there's something in there about romance readers. So like the commercial enterprise itself, the product, fine. Yeah. Neutral. The trappings (laughs) of everything else, not good. What people do with it, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really an interesting take, yeah. Andrea, what do you think? Mary Fisher's character, which, by the way, whoever was tweeting from the Homats account on Woe Love She Devil, hashtag, and mentioned Mary Fisher, marriage Fisher. (laughs) That was amazing. (laughs) Love it, love it. I think that there's a lot of work going on around crafting the idea of what a romance novelist is like in the world that they live in. And just think about who is she a pastiche of? If we think like 1989, like Danielle Steele, Mm -hmm. there's a Jackie Collins reference at some point. Mm -hmm. It's that brand of romance novelist of the mirage of a lifestyle where they're like method actors. Roger Ebert in his review of She Devil said that Meryl Streep's uh, performance was as if Jackie Collins, Danielle Steele, and Barbara Cartland were put in a trash compactor. (laughs) I also think it's interesting because I feel like Roger Ebert hung out with all three of those people. Absolutely, (laughs) Barbara Cartland. (laughs) Yeah. And I read someone else on Letterboxd did a review of this, and they described Meryl Streep's performance, described her as the silky persona. And I was like, silky is exactly right. And she is doing just like her voice and her mannerisms are... Call me Mary. Mary. (laughs) Yeah, it's entirely a pastiche of what you would imagine romance novelists to be. And it reminded me, I found this old Life magazine article that did a profile on some really successful romance novelists in the early 80s. And they were all shot with these like very soft focus and they were like, Donna's favorite place to visit is Venice in the spring. Is this the one with the bonkers portraits? Yes, this is the one with the bonkers portraits. And then there's the one of Kathleen Woodowis where she's with her like big terrible son. Yes. yes. Yeah. And he's holding a leaf. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. I've talked about this on the podcast before. I think specifically in the conversation with Steve Amidown when we were talking about Where the Heart Roams, which is a documentary that was, I want to say 1985, 86-ish, of the, all these romance novelists, mm-hmm. like, getting together on a train. train. And then ulti- yeah, and then they go to this romance conference. And there were a lot of things that were echoes in this film. They're almost contemporary in mm-hmm. terms of, like, mm-hmm. when they were created. So, like, thinking about the documentary version of romance novelists and what personas they're creating and then how they're being portrayed in film That was super interesting. In Where the Heart Roams, the author spent a lot of time like musing on the nature of love and what men and women want and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of the things that Mary Fisher says in this movie to journalists, she gets a lot of the same questions about romance novels that are asked today. And her answers are also very similar, which 
I found very interesting. There's this one where the journalist from People Magazine is obviously being like snooty and says something about some reviewers say this about romance and Mary Fisher's immediate comeback is all those reviewers are men. Mm -hmm. So getting into that gender essentialism of romance as an industry Mm -hmm. and how that is both the defense and the assertion of its value. Yeah. And that's also not based in truth. And I think that a lot of the assertions that romance novelists were putting forth in the 80s around what their books were doing Mm -hmm. are ultimately also very like gender essentialist about what men and women want in heterosexual relationships. Yeah. Like I always get nervous whenever people are like, if you want to be a better lover to a woman as a man, you should read a romance novel. And I'm like, maybe we should give them a shorter list. I feel (laughs) like, like you cannot literalize desire in the way that like... And romance novels do not literalize desire. It's fiction and it's fantastical. And I believe in things like escalation and and whatever. But I also believe like people can have a flight of fancy and it doesn't have to be like, oh, you reading this book means you want this to happen to you. Like you would love to get kidnapped and raped by a pirate. It's like, no. No, that's not <laughs> that's what That's not is. what I'm looking for. But right. there's also this point when Bob first meets Mary and he's at his work function and he tells his boss like, oh, I just met Mary Fisher and I think I might be her accountant. And the guy was like, oh, what kind of assets are those? And he says something like astronomical. Yeah. And I'm picturing Judith McNaught walking her dog out of the window of her jaguar and I've something fantastical. And his boss is like, oh, I suppose people do buy those romance novels. And Bob says, yes, women do. As if, like, women are a subcategory of people. Of consumer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of consumer. And it also belies the fact that these men, Bob, who represents pretty much all men in this movie, do not take into consideration women as a factor. And that's why he's never, like, suspicious of his wife actually leaving him. And in fact, she burns down his house. And he's never suspicious of his secretary, who he's fooling around with being able to get him in trouble and he's never suspicious of the court stenographer and he's never suspicious of the judge his like lack of awareness of women as people with agency is what extracts him from his assets extracts his assets from him turns his assets into liabilities exactly there we go so the book that this was based on was i believe written in 1983 by faye weldon who is british Mm -hmm. and barbara cartland is a much more relevant cultural touch point in the british romance space compared to american romance authors Faye Weldon felt that her original novel was much more about envy than revenge. Mm -hmm. And when I read the plot of the novel, it sounds different enough that I'm like, okay, I see where envy is much more there. But I think the movie that we watched, which as you mentioned, was the second adaptation after the British series, Mm -hmm. I think it made it much more about revenge. And I would be super curious how much of the original text or the TV series dwelled in the capitalist language that I think the 1989 American film languishes in. Mm -hmm. But I think that it definitely positions romance within the capitalist marketplace. I was tweeting about how all of the flirtation between Mary and Bob initially is encoded in language of a financial transaction. Right. And the whole framing of the film around assets and liabilities and him being an accountant, a counter of money, a manager of people's wealth, essentially, or at least somebody who understands how people 
measure their wealth. Mm -hmm. And then Ruth moving from caretaker to somebody engaged in an employment agency. So literally managing how people do their work and talking about romance novels and novelists. It feels like it reduced romance novels and novelists to not only the consumer object, but speaking about its consumers as consumers and Mm -hmm. what use they get out of it and what use people have for romantic relationships. It felt very, I don't know if it's just the Reagan years. Mm. Don't ask me when Reagan was president also. I don't know. In the 80s at some point. It just, did it not feel like it asked every question like through that lens of yes capital and work and... Also the culture wars are so yeah. like homemaker versus career woman, which totally. is what the parallels of Ruth and Mary are. But what I think makes this like a standout in terms of how it talks about romance as both the capitalist machine that it is, but also the product it is and the consumers who consume it, which makes it so different from Romancing the Stone, also about a romance author who like has to undo an artifice and become more of who she actually is. Like that film talked about readers not consumers like that film talked about her work as a creative not Mm -hmm. her artifice in the same way and also came out in the 80s and also is dealing with questions around like a woman's place and a man's place so like the culture wars are all over both of these films but like andrea to your point like this is decidedly a conversation about capital and like how it's made and who's making it and as morgan brought up earlier like how you plug in and cash out as like these homemakers suddenly need to but also that's a conversation about like wealth generation in terms of like how people need to make money to survive and I think yeah this is like naked in its discussion of the romance industry in a way that I was very surprised by Mm -hmm. it's very aware of it very aware of it and takes it pretty neutrally but does not take romance authors neutrally and does not take their readers neutrally so it's weird to have this part of the sandwich be like capital it's fine and then have the other like the bread of the sandwich be like these people suck (laughs) (laughs) even thinking about like romance novels we've read that were written during this time there was this real it's a given like you're either a homemaker or you're a career gal are you thinking about the movie like working girl like Mm -hmm. she divests herself entirely of any kind of domesticity and i think this movie asserts homemakers and professional women are the same and they're doing the same thing and labor is labor which feels remarkable but also something that's incredibly buried in the conversation but I think it is still present in the conversation of the film and I do feel like it's intentional because there's a way more superficial version of this movie that could exist Mm -hmm. telling the same story. I'm so glad you brought up the comparison to Romancing the Stone because I listened to that episode and I was like hey you guys haven't done another uh, movie episode Uh." (laughs) and invited myself to have the conversation with you but Yes, there are a lot of comparisons there and they are from a similar era. But I think Romancing the Stone is like so much more interested in thinking about Joan Wilder as somebody who had sought her satisfaction in writing these books and then like becoming an actor and an active subject rather than a just a, a spinner of stories. She brought that into her real life. And I think 
maybe is the similarity in the conversation going from object to subject, which yeah. I think that very much is a, a theme of romance novels, like early bodice ripper, like 70s and 80s. When I go back and read them, there's so much of them where from my modern lens, I'm just like, oh my God, this is not huge progress. But I'm like, okay, no, but it, it was even just the assertion that the women in these books compared to a lot of the mainstream books of the time, even if they were not as active as I want them to be, mm-hmm. were centered in the story and were making choices and were important mm-hmm. in some way. And it, it's interesting because you were talking about the like the pirate and being raped. And, and even when you think about like how in that era, how desire, it could not come out and be that these women wanted sex and could enjoy sex. It still had to be like filtered through, don't be grabby hands McGee, like trying to get your hands on sexual pleasure because that makes you the bad kind of woman. Mm. And also I think I, I feel like they're in those kinds of romance novels up until really recently, I feel like part of it was punishing a woman for having an adventure because I think romancing the stone really demonstrates that a lot of romance novels are actually like adventure books that have a romantic chain pulling the story along. And I think it's really interesting that in Romancing the Stone, she essentially goes from a writer of romance novels to a heroine in a romance novel. Whereas in this movie, our author clearly thinks of herself as a heroine because she writes that book that's about being a homemaker and she has a whole chapter about doing laundry and what a revelation that is. And she's told, no, that's not interesting. We're not going to publish this. This is a bad book, what you've written here. That's about a real life experience of an actual woman, like the day-to-day mundanity of femininity. And I think that's interesting that we go from in Romancing the Stone to take your mundane life and romanticize it to our author in She-Devil tries to romanticize the mundane of her life and is a failure because of it. Punished for it. Yes. Yeah, I think this movie is like, fascinating there's so many pieces of it it's so much more than I ever thought it was going to be which is what a treat so I had this really hard time determining how this movie wanted me to feel about these things and I think a lot of it had to do with my cultural context I had some formative years in the culture wars but I wasn't formed by the culture wars so much as I was formed by the Spice Girls and with that (laughs) yes oh my god yes (laughs) yeah me too (laughs) Girl power. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so like our reading of this movie is going to be tricky. And so I was like, I I have no idea how to feel about it. I looked up the book on Goodreads and there is a remarkable number of people saying that this novel is a pretty extreme feminist novel. And there are in fact men who reviewing it were like, as a man, I was uncomfortable reading this and it made me feel like I was crawling out of my skin. Yeah. Which I haven't read it, but sounds bitchin'. Um, And then I found out that the director of this movie was Susan Seidelman, who is best known for Desperately Seeking Susan, talking about parallel lives were all the same. But her, arguably her most important film is called Smithereens, and she produced it independently in 1982. And it's considered kind of a cornerstone text of the Riot Girl movement that would come after 
and was very controversial for its like very punk rock depiction of femininity and aggression and bad feeling being legitimized. It has a Criterion release recently. And when I found out that Seidelman was the director, I was like, I think (laughs) (laughs) she and I would have had similar worldviews if we had been born at similar times. And that made me feel... I try to take things like as the text themselves, but sometimes it's really hard with a mass release that had two really big stars because Roseanne Barr was a huge star at that point. She'd already released her memoirs and her television show. Meryl Streep already won an Academy Award. So like taking that into consideration, what it would mean to release for Susan Seidelman to make a movie with those two big stars in 1989, like how that needs to be cushioned. Mm Mm-hmm or suggestion. And so having that information made me way more comfortable trusting my instincts on it and being like, I like this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this feels good as opposed to being like, I think this is like trying to like look under the rock for the grubs, which I didn't really want to do when I was watching it, which speaks to how charming it is. It is quite transporting. Yeah. Yeah. And As you were saying that, I think that the fact that we are sitting here in 2021 and being like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this. And every time I think that the film is trying to position Ruth as the good guy and Mary as the bad guy Mm -hmm. and we're supposed to root for one over the other. And then you really look under the hood and you're like, actually, like there's Mm -hmm. a lot going on there. And I think even when you think about the fact that Ruth's character is framed initially as monstrous. And yes, Yes. there's a lot of fat jokes. Her weight is positioned as a problem. Mm -hmm. She has this giant visible mole on her face, Mm -hmm. which goes away at some point. She gets it removed when she becomes the Vesta Rose Employment Agency. She wears a Band-Aid for two scenes. So like she's had it surgically removed. Good close reading as well. (laughs) Okay, and then she transforms herself from the dowdy clothing housewife with an unfashionably tight perm. This was my cultural clue. The desirable women in the film have looser, Mm -hmm. bigger waves. And by the end of the movie, she has looser waved hair, is wearing more corporate attire that is more flattering on her. She doesn't lose weight. Mm -hmm. Her transformation, there are lots of markers of her transformation where she goes from, I think, trying too hard to look a certain part to sort of coming into her own and not without artifice getting a mole removed is not without like intervention but in thinking about like how in our present state with our sort of cultural context as like millennial white women I want to come back to the Spice Girls because (laughs) I do think it's really interesting where I think we're sort of like what kind of person like what archetype is this person supposed to be and I think that the characters are resisting that Mm. archetypicization or something Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it made me think of something that I have not read more carefully at this point I've started to but Hiroki Azuma is a Japanese cultural critic who wrote this book called Otaku Japan's Database Animals and it's like postmodernism. but one of the things that he talks about is consumers becoming database animals where we want to categorize characters that we encounter in pop culture so essentially like the boy band where he's the sweet one and he's the sporty one and and spice girls Mm -hmm. where they literally have defined characteristics that position them as you're this type of person these are your interests this is how you dress and where 
the consumers get to decide, not only have I put you in place in my database of types of being or things that I find desirable, but then you choose a favorite, yeah. align yourself, and they're all good. And I don't know how far afield I'm going from Hiroki Azuma's theories here, but but they're all like desirable, but it's, oh no, you get to choose. It's like, like you're astrology. choosing from the options. Yes. Yeah. But it's personalized. You get to mm-hmm. feel like you're personalized. Yeah. Personally choosing. It's not a binary. It's choose from all the wonderful options on the shelf. Yeah. It reminds me of like peak Tumblr, which it's so funny. On TikTok, you now see like people who weren't alive during peak Tumblr or not <laughs> fully formed humans during peak Tumblr, like romanticizing it as like a nostalgia machine. Like there was um, a lot of trash on Tumblr. <laughs> That's what they're nostalgic for. They're like, wow, when the internet was fucking crazy, not like it is today. (laughs) They're not wrong. But there was this like real project of creating identity for yourself as a way to make yourself legible to others and like a need to like my sexuality, I feel this and this. So the word for that is now this. And like we created culturally millennials, like an incredible like expanse of labels and I think to make ourselves as much as to like feel like we belong to a community to also make ourselves legible to others craft that persona for others to consume yeah right like I'm a Ravenclaw sporty spice pumpkin latte in the fall blah 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 yeah and I I think that it's interesting to think about this movie as these characters and the idea of who you're supposed to identify with is so murky. Mm-hmm. Who is the she-devil, yeah. as the Womance Twitter so aptly questioned? Is the sh- true she-devil friendship? Is that Was that the <laughs> where we came to? Yeah. And I think that like we're like, there needs to be a clear hero. We need to understand why this person is worth rooting for. Yeah. And I, I think that like behind our questions, I think we're revealing our desire to essentially make this make sense in our cultural context. Yeah. That's a really good point because we're right now sitting here, who is the she-devil? But if you think about it, like Mary goes from one really specific archetype to another very specific archetype. And both are dated almost. Like when she's a romance novelist, she has this kind of Veronica Lake hair and she's wearing the Oh, what was that brand called? She's wearing like these gunny sacks off the shoulder dresses that are like evocative of the Edwardian era during the like Edwardian 80s renaissance, which I think was tapering off in the late 80s. And then she becomes like all black, low pony, giant glasses, Gloria Steinem type, who I would argue is considered the one we're supposed to root for. Ruth is just a better version of herself. Like she's wearing a pantsuit and she has good hair now. And her ex-husband is like, I'd love to have dinner. And she's like, yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Like she wins ultimately. Us, we're like, if you want to be like Gloria Steinem cosplay novelist, like cool. That's groovy. Awesome. I'm glad you found yourself. But I think in the cultural context, that's actually saying, look at this big fucking phony who's still a big fucking phony. And at the end, she like comes alight whenever that man gives her a compliment. And so I think she's the failure. Mm -hmm. Um, And Ruth, Mm -hmm. who could not give a shit about what her ex-husband wants to say to her, is the winner Mm -hmm. of the movie 
Would you rather live in a world that's, it's just a different way of sorting things, right? There's a winner and a loser in this movie as opposed to like different types. I wish we could just fix it and like we could all just be self-expressive individuals. Your comment, Morgan, when you said that I know what the culture wars are, but like I'm more informed by the Spice Girls. Like I think both that comment is so good. But the thing that's so weird right now about being informed about the culture rather than a participant is that the culture wars are reasserting themselves right now in our moment in a way that feels like really terrible. And that made this movie fresh in a way that I didn't expect, makes the 80s books that we read fresh in a way that I don't expect, especially as we are literally losing rights that were gained at the in the 70s and 80s. And so I feel strangely ill-equipped by the categorization and girl power of Spice Girls, and I'm taking a lot from movies like She-Devil and books by Johanna Lindsay in the 80s, and I don't know if that's the thing that should be happening. But yeah, like, no, definitely not. I don't think we should repeat <laughs> what we did last time because no, it, we've gotten back it into work. the same. We've gotten back into the same swamp, and we um, have. so we should probably find a new map. Right, which is, I think, to your point about, I wish I could fix it. Like, I felt that one in my chest. Like, I wish I could fix it. Because Mary and Ruth are, they're on the exact same path. They just have different trappings. They make different choices. But ultimately, like, none of the choices, they're good because they're all framed around men and men suck. And so I wish we could fix it. And I think that was the problem with the 90s girl power Spice Girl movement was that I grew up thinking and then quickly became educated on this not being true that like we did it (laughs) like we are proving that women have attained equality and women can do everything and I think that that was like the mantra of 90s girlhood was the you can be the president if you want to look how much progress we've made and look how far we've come and look how different things are and then nothing has really changed and I think almost Mm. part of why we find ourselves back where we were was thinking we had solved it when any woman or person who was working at that time and was maybe more of a sentient adult than I was at the time, maybe would have seen more clearly the fissures of that. Mm. <laughs> fissures. <laughs> and, and then I discovered this in my own career where despite the fact that it's like better understood in the workplace that men should not like, and again, we know this doesn't not happen, but men should not make overt comments about a woman not being able to do something because she's a woman. Right. That just moves underground. And I think that I, as I was in my career, had to come to terms with the fact that while everything is saying that it's all better now, mm-hmm. that I was still suffering from the same biases mm-hmm. that existed before. It's just like now it was covert. And now... I am questioning myself and if that's what's really happening and was not as equipped, I think, to deal with head on what was going on. And and I think that as we start to like broaden, what are the larger legal freedoms that people are losing around reproductive freedom? It's because I think that we got like complacent in the culture speaking to this being a problem of the past. I recently was reminded of a Andrea Dworkin quote where she said, if we give up now, younger generations of women will be told porn is good for them and they will believe it. And Oh my God, it happened. It happens, yes, yeah. It happened. And, and that's entirely right. Like we stopped to celebrate and 
we stopped lifting up the rock and looking underneath it. And I do think with the Me Too movement, we're dragging to the surface things that happened behind closed doors, like sexual assault. But I think that's a lot easier to drag into the light than something like your male coworkers undermining you when you're not in the room with like little jokes about, I don't know, what you're into. Or even when you are in the room. Oh, you've got better handwriting. Would you take the notes? Yeah. You're a faster typer or whatever. That stuff still happens all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've been trying not get to the end of conversations and feel like, well, I guess we cracked that nut wide open, which was my joke for a really long time. And I both knew that I wasn't actually getting there but also just like feeling vaguely self-satisfied that I think we really did something here and I I think that like this movie I am really impressed by Mm -hmm. how much this movie has to really talk about and think about and what it says about then what it says about now there's so many questions there and I actually think maybe I'm coming to appreciate that this movie doesn't try to get to pat answers or pat conclusions and I think that's like what we're talking about with stopping to celebrate and all of that is like, yeah, guess what? Maybe this is, maybe there isn't going to be a terminus to borrow what Isabel was talking about in our last conversation about problematizing romance is we, we want the satisfaction of getting to a terminus. And I think mm. that's a lot of what romance novels are about yeah. is feeling that satisfaction of friends. We did it. We tied up all the loose ends, all of Chekhov's <laughs> pinky rings yeah. that were introduced early on. And we can feel good about all of the the emotional resolution that we've seen happen here today. Yeah. And it's like, oh, guess what? If we treat real life and real conflicts as something that's ever going to just get to this yay girl power now we can just go out into the desert and dance with like discs yeah and wear our costumes showing how free and independent we are as women that guess what that's a music video i'm talking about the spice girls that's a music (laughs) video representation of all the the progress we've made that's not real Mm -hmm. and yes stories need a beginning and end but that's not how real life yeah conflict is resolved yeah I think it's really telling that the Rotten Tomatoes score for She-Devil is like two stars (gasps) and the letterboxed average score is like four (laughs) out of ten no is is letterboxed out of ten What's Letterboxd? I don't even know what that is. Letterboxd is a place where it's a review gatherer, but it's like independent. Like people just submit their personal, I watched this movie, here's my review of it. And they also create like affinity lists of movies that are pretty funny sometimes. Is it like Goodreads for movies? Yes, very much. Because it's also about collecting everything that you've consumed culturally. And there's quite a bit of one-upmanship. Like someone was like, Paul Verhoeven has released a nun movie. Like a professional review of it was like, this is like if showgirls took place in a convent. So I can't fucking wait. But everyone on Letterboxd was like, I went to an early screening. (laughs) But Letterboxd, it's out of four stars. And I I think like the fact that the movie She-Devil has a significantly better rating on Letterboxd than it does on Rotten Tomatoes speaks to the fact that like a younger group of consumers is seeing the value in it. And maybe She-Devil was like radically ahead of its time. We can go with that. Yeah. I think it was. Not appreciated in the time it was made. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I think we cracked that nut wide open. <laughs> we crack that nut wide open. <laughs> she devil. Is it a woe or a no? It's a woe. 
It's a total low. Go yeah. watch it. You should definitely. You can watch get it for it. free on YouTube. You can watch it for free on YouTube with ads. You can pay four whole American dollars to rent it on Amazon Prime. Like a chump. <laughs> the good news is though, is with six percent inflation this year, that's really like three fifty in <laughs> today's dollars. It's true story. It's true story. In twenty twenty money, it's three fifty. Money's not real anyway. I know. I'm not an economist. I'm not an accountant. I've already forgotten assets and liabilities. No, I have it. Andrea, guys, any parting thoughts? My least favorite thing is when I'm done recording and I immediately think, oh, I should have said that. So I did really enjoy this movie. I think that it was interesting on so many levels. Like it was visually interesting. The characters were interesting. The music was great. Yeah, there was a lot going on. I liked it. It's a deep visual story. We've obviously gone over like stuff that's happening in the background of other scenes. So it's definitely worth like multiple rewatchings. And I think that as we on our respective podcasts spend a lot of time like deep diving into a lot of other things that are like much deeper about these texts. I also think that this text, this movie was meant to be enjoyed And there are so many pleasurable moments as somebody just escaping into this text. I think that this film really understood like these fun things that we like to see. Like I love a building makeover montage and like who doesn't love the the throwing the flyers from the top of a building. And there's a lot of just like fun, visually cathartic moments narratively cathartic moments it was just fun yeah it's got a lot of whimsy which i wasn't expecting and yeah it's a wonderful movie for people who like movies like me who have a really hard time finding criticism you will also find a hard time finding criticism for this movie (laughs) isabel what are your final thoughts i loved this conversation i very much enjoyed this movie and i think that if the thing that you walk away from is like both immerse yourself in this film but resist pat answers yeah like, that's a pretty good thing to leave this with romance novels remain an evergreen way for us to access what it means to exist in femininity and womanhood in the world today and this is another example of that like while romance novels aren't this like huge set piece they are the way in which our characters meet one another both literally and figuratively. I'm glad we did this. Let's do this Me too. Yay! Thank you so much for making this suggestion, Andrea. We had such a blast. Thank so you for fun. coming on and spending time with us. I great. love to spend time with you guys. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrea, for getting us to watch a movie, Twisting Our Arm, and hanging out with us on a Saturday to talk about the movie. You're such a pleasure to talk with. How can people find you if they want to hear you talk more? First of all, thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk with two such luminous, intelligent people on a Saturday. Um, I mean, look, it's just always a pleasure to speak with you. You guys make me think about this stuff in different ways because I'm just stuck in my own little subjective experience and I need help getting out of it. So such a pleasure. It was a great movie and it was an absolute delight all around. Thanks for having me. 
Peeps can find me on the interwebs, the post-Tumblr web, as they <laughs> as it is known, um, at shelfloafpodcast.com, where you can find all of the information about my episodes, some blog posts, and transcripts for episodes, or your favorite podcatcher, Shelf Love, two words, or on Twitter, at shelflovepod. All right. With that. Loosen your sheaves. But never your devils. Mwah. Mwah. <laughs>